Here's the thing. You can't do everything well. There are a lot of big accounting firms out there. You look at their websites and they offer HR services and they offer tech, you know, they'll come and they'll take care of your backend IT departments. They'll do investment management. They'll do all kinds of things and they'll, they'll process payroll. It's our philosophy that you can't do everything and be great at everything. Do you need to hire fast with confidence? Don't gamble with a new hire. Test their knowledge with Account Tests. Account Tests offers a suite of technical knowledge, personality, and critical reasoning tests designed by accountants for accounting firms. Send an online test to a job candidate and get an instant report when they finish. That means you can make offers ahead of the competition. Check them out at www.accounttests.com. That's A-C-C- O-U-N-T-E-S-T-S dot com. And stay tuned for a special offer coming up later in the episode. Accounting firm owners. If your firm can only grow as fast as you can find the time to take on new clients, you're not alone. Fortunately, Dark Horse CPAs has built a platform-style CPA firm that will transform your practice. It has the technology, resources, staffing, qualified inbound leads, and community that will enable you to spend your time growing your practice, serving clients, and doing more of what you love. Stay tuned to learn more about how Dark Horse CPAs is saving public accounting, one firm at a time. If you'd like to earn CPE credit for listening to this episode, visit earmarkcpe.com, download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. Continuing education has never been so easy. And now, on to the episode. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Earmark Podcast. As always, I am your host, Blake Oliver, CPA. And joining me today is Eric Freint, founder of Your Part-Time Controller. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you, Blake. Long-time listener. Uh, so nice to almost meet you in person. I am so honored that you listen to my show, The Cloud Accounting Podcast. It's wonderful to have you as a guest today on the Earmark Podcast. Your part-time controller hit my radar big time this year when it was announced that you made it onto the Accounting Today Top 100 Firms list for the first time. That was a major milestone for us, and uh, it doesn't change anything about who we are, what we do, and how we do it, we, uh, but it was a nice way to publicly recognize that fact that we do good work, and uh, we wouldn't be on that list if we didn't do good work, if organizations didn't continue to hire us and, and mostly stay with us. So it's, it's a nice form of recognition. You're very modest about that. I, I, I think a lot of folks who run firms uh, would be tooting their own horn. And <laughs> I think here's what's exciting about this to me, right? I mean, it is the fact that your part-time controller is not a traditional CPA firm. Correct. So it, it might not change how you do business, but the way you do business is, I think, fundamentally different in a lot of ways than many of the firms that have been on this list for years and years and years. And so I would love if you could give sort of the, uh, you know, the overview of your part-time controller to our listeners, since I think many of them, this is new. 
Well, I'll, I'll give you the short version of, of how we got started. So uh, uh, we're coming up on our 30th uh, anniversary in March of uh, 23 will be that anniversary. I'm a CPA. Uh, I'm a graduate of uh, the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, undergraduate degree, major in accounting. Uh, I did my tour of duty for three years in public accounting and did a whole lot of other things after that. The one common theme of a lot of the things I tried to do is I always had this desire to be self-employed. I, I wanted to start my own business and, uh, I tried all kinds of things. None of them had anything to do with accounting. And my wife always used to say, you want to start your own company? You're an accountant. Start an accounting firm. And well, <laughs> if I had listened to her, I would have saved about 10 years of my life. But anyway, I have to say that uh, as an accountant, I am not embarrassed to say that I enjoy accounting. A lot of accountants are embarrassed uh, with that. And I understand why, but I, I enjoy accounting, but there was a problem. And the problem that I was facing was that I wasn't getting the sense of fulfillment that I was hoping to get. This kind of fulfillment that I would imagine doctors get from, from their work, or artists get, musicians, painters, and so on, writers. I wasn't feeling that sense of fulfillment. Fulfillment. I sometimes mm -hmm. compare it to doing a puzzle, a crossword or a Sudoku or whatever. Now, Wordle, uh, you know, you, when you do it, you, you know, if you complete it, you feel good. And then what do you do? You crumble it up if you did it on paper or if you did it on your uh, computer or iPad, you, you know, you move on. There's no sense of fulfillment, at least not for me, that comes from that. Okay. So I was unemployed. I was after my last most recent venture now close to 30 years ago. And uh, I'll skip all the details. But basically, I was introduced to uh, an organization by a friend of mine who needed some basic, what we might say is, you know, bookkeeping, you know, help. And, and uh, he said, go help them. I know you're home. And uh, so married three very young kids at that time. And uh, so I went. Uh, and I went to a few others, as friends of mine heard. Later that year, I was introduced to a nonprofit organization. Now, Blake, I knew nothing about nonprofit accounting. This is 1993. But I guess something of a fortuitous stroke of luck. 1993, so I'll throw out some accounting terminology so that your listeners can qualify for some CPE. 1993 was the year that FASB's 116 and 117 came out. Now, of course, FASB uh, way of classifying their rules has since changed to the codification. But nevertheless, the fact that I didn't know those rules didn't really put me at a disadvantage because nobody else did. Anyway, I was introduced to a nonprofit. From that nonprofit, I started to get referrals to other, and I had an epiphany. My epiphany was the mission and the meaning behind the work that they do was giving meaning to the work that I was doing, helping them. So I often say to people when they ask, how did we get started? It was an accident. I didn't plan for that to happen. So it started by accident, working with one nonprofit and then two and then three. Within 12 months, I, I was fully maxed out on my time. And, uh, and I, you know, start to hire people first 
people part-time than full-time. And that's, that's how we got started. So that's fascinating. It was feeling like you had, you didn't have a purpose in accounting and then you got hooked up with a not-for-profit helping them. And you, you started to feel like you did have a purpose and you need a, a, your part-time controller specializes in serving almost exclusively not-for-profits. That's one of the things that makes it really different than a lot of accounting firms where we tend to you know, be everything to everyone, especially large accounting firms. Yeah. In fact, um, we did a survey. We do this annual survey of our clients and the most recent one, it shows that only 5% of our clients are for, are for profit entities. The rest are either public charities, private foundations, or, you know, we have a category of other as, as some of your listeners might know under IRS rules, there are 20, there's a, there's about 28 or 29, depending upon how you count, different categories of nonprofit entities defined in, in law. Most people are familiar with 501c3s. That's the most popular, but there's 27 others. And uh, so we do uh, mostly work for C3s, but we also do work for others as well. And how many people work at your part-time controller now? What's your revenue? What got you on the top 100 list? So it, how many people work? With us or for us? Yeah, like how many? Uh, whatever how, number I give you right now, it's going to change tomorrow. <laughs> as of April 2022. As of April 2022, I'll say 400. 400, okay. Uh, we're, we're over that. And uh, I'll speak to the staffing issues because I know that that's a common topic on your podcast. In fact, I did hear David say, David Leary, on, on the first part of your most recent podcast that he doesn't know a single firm that says that they have enough accountants. Well, he's right about that. We don't have enough, but, <laughs> but our, what we find Blake is that our quote shortage if, uh, is due to our growth. We're not losing people at any higher rate than we might have prior to the pandemic. So we are scrambling because of the growth. And, Pretty uh, tremendous growth because you, you sent over the survey that you did of your clients, which I think is fantastic. Uh, every firm should be doing something like this. And in 2020, you surveyed 753 clients. And in 2021, it was 1,111 clients. And I, I don't mind sharing how that happened. I hate to say that anything good came out of the pandemic. Thank God my immediate family is healthy, but I have now other members of my family who are testing positive. It seems like lately, more just about everybody I know has some member of their family who has tested positive for COVID. But this information might prove helpful for, for some of your listeners. So as the pandemic uh, dawned on us, uh, like everyone else, we, we were in a state of panic. And uh, the panic was because serving nonprofit organizations Nobody knew what to expect with the pandemic. We weren't even sure how to get our mail delivered to us because when the, when the uh, lockdown happened, we were closed out of our, our main you know, administrative office, which happens to be in Philadelphia. That was where at that time we were getting our mail. We were in a state of panic. Uh, what was this going to do? Because our clients, nonprofit organizations, we just assumed we're going to get hammered. So like everyone else, we were forced immediately to work in a completely remote environment. 
And probably more importantly for us, our clients were also forced to work in a remote environment. And uh, I, will, I, I will tell everyone that our preferred mode of working is where we work on site at our clients' offices. We, we want to be in their office with them. Our work is actually more, it's more efficient for us to be there. Even though we, we spend time getting to their office and coming home at the end of the day, and there are other issues, once we're there, being with the people who we have to pose questions to during the course of the day really helps us a lot. Anyway, now suddenly we went from 80 to 85% working on site to 100% working off site. And uh, what we have discovered over the last two years is that we can be very successful working remotely. Our, prefer our preference would still be to be on site, but by being able to work remotely, what it suddenly allowed us to do was to take on clients regardless of where they are. We have eight physical offices, and prior to the pandemic, all of our clients were around those eight physical offices. Uh, but now, today, we have clients in over 40 cities, uh, 40 states. 40 states. We have staff who live in over 30 states. You know, just doing payroll is a problem because <laughs> keeping track, yeah. we're, we're spending a lot more money on hiring other CPAs, other tax experts to help us take care of the taxes. And what was the geography of those original eight offices? I mean, you've obviously expanded beyond now. It doesn't matter, but. Where, so, where uh, you know, living in South Jersey, the, the first got started in Philadelphia. And I went to school okay. in Philadelphia, which I've already mentioned. Yeah, Wharton. So, yeah. uh after a number of years, things were working nicely in Philadelphia. And uh, we uh, got a call from one of our very large clients at that time in Philadelphia. They needed more help. I went to their office and we're sitting there and they have a subsidiary in, in Washington, D.C. And as we're talking, they say, well, this subsidiary, could, they really need help with their accounting. And I said to them, and here's almost a direct quote. I said, oh, we can help them. <laughs> and they looked at me and they said, well, how could you help them? Do you have an office in Washington? Now, you can't lie. I can't say, yes, we do and we don't. That'd be yeah. So I said to them instead, I said, no, we don't have an office in Washington, but we would love to start one. You could be our first client in Washington. Okay, so this client in Philadelphia, if I told, I won't mention their name. But they made the introduction. We did have to compete against some Washington firms, but clearly we had a leg up. Okay, so now we're in Washington. We're there for about two or three years. And one day the phone rings in our Philadelphia office. It's an organization in the Bronx, in New York City, in the Bronx. And they say to us, we know that you guys are in Philadelphia. We're in the Bronx, but is there any way you can help us? Mm-hmm. Nonprofit, by the way. Yeah. So, you know, our DNA is such that when someone says, can you help us? We are 99% of the time, we're going to say, yes, we can help. And so and that's we, how you grew the offices in the Northeast organically, right? Somebody needed help here, start an office. Somebody needs help here, start an office. So that's, that's how New York started with that yeah. one client. And we had to scramble to find somebody on our staff who the closest person we had to the Bronx lived in the Princeton, New Jersey area. 
but he was willing to make that commute. If you own an accounting firm, then you know the struggle. Trying to develop the right technology, the right people, the right marketing and pricing strategies, and the right SOPs. Not to mention handling all of the one-off issues that come with being a business owner, on top of your duty to deliver high-quality work amid pressing deadlines. To say it ain't easy is an understatement. Dark Horse knows that building a scalable practice requires a significant investment of your limited time and money in order to build the infrastructure you need. And it requires you to be sourcing, developing, and implementing new technologies in order to keep up with the marketplace. Instead of breaking your back trying to build a modern accounting firm, why not just join a firm that has already built what your practice needs to scale? Instead of trading your soul to merge into a giant traditional partnership model firm, why not join a firm that will allow you to keep your autonomy, retain ownership of your practice, and provide you with way more upside in a fast-growing progressive firm? Instead of trying to learn everything you need to know to serve your clients, why not shortcut your learning curve by collaborating with a supportive group of experienced and knowledgeable peers at Dark Horse? There's a better way to evolve your practice. There's a better way to be a CPA. Dark Horse invites you to visit abetterway.cpa to learn why firms are moving their practice to Dark Horse CPAs. That's abetterway.cpa. So, so, so let that, me get this straight. I got to get this straight. So you had <laughs> eight offices prior to the pandemic. Yes. 80, 85% of your work was on site. And uh, they call it 80%. 80%. And then pandemic hits and you were able to transition to remote. You continued to grow and hire and take on clients remotely. How did that, were you already set up for everyone to work remotely? How did you make that happen? Oh, we weren't set up for anyone other than the people who were servicing those 20%. But we had a leg up in the sense that with 20% of our work being done remotely, we'd already had, we had some experience. And uh, in one day, we went fully 100% remote. But we have a staff, our staff are all experienced people. Unfortunately, we, we feel that we're not able to hire people directly out of college. Mm -hmm. We wish we could, We've tried over the years, but we need people who have at least three to five years of experience. So our staff are all experienced accountants, controllers, former CFOs and such. And uh, everyone's got computers at home that not necessarily all of the equal quality of technology. Everyone's got, uh, you know, Wi-Fi at home. Right. Uh, and I imagine they were probably doing some of their work at home already. Right. Actually, like, no. We, we no. actually had a policy where, again, remember our preference was prior to the pandemic to be on site. And our clients who hired us, they wanted us to be on site. So it worked two ways. Our policy was always get your work done on site before you go home. Don't take work home with you. When you go home, go home. And, uh, and also clients, it gave, makes, makes, it, it's comforting. It helps build a level of trust. Mm -hmm. When you can see the person who's who's doing the work, and clients will come over and ask us, "What do you, you know? How's right. it going? What are, you, what are you working on?" And so on. No, we actually preferred not to do work at home, except for those engagements where, for one reason or another, it was agreed upon that we would be doing some work remotely. They might okay. have been, for example, uh, a nonprofit that had 
a virtual office and there were yeah it might have been a nonprofit that's based in another country where they have a uh, american you know related subsidiary and it completely didn't even or sometimes they were just out too far for anybody from our staff to be able to get in their car and drive there well, well so now i'm really confused like <laughs> how did this how did this work then like what did you what did you did everyone just how, how did you make it happen? Well, the, the team that would figured be it out. A they're, long, a long they're, story, but the sh- they're experienced people, right? So they had experience. They knew how to deal with stuff that comes up, I guess. And they and you all figured it out. Well, so don't forget that the pandemic was something that happened to everyone. Everyone read the papers. Everyone was watching the news. Everyone, everyone knew when governments started to shut, you know, shut down offices and it became impossible for to go to an office. Everybody knew that that was coming. When I said that was coming, within a day or two of it actually happening, people right. knew that it was coming. Right, right. And at that point, because we had eight offices, we were very good at communicating with our staff. We were already very good at holding staff meetings. Hmm. You know, in the old days, all of our staff meetings were in Philadelphia. And then as we added Washington and New York, we brought all the staff for all these for our monthly staff meetings. We brought them to Philadelphia. When, once we opened up Houston and Phoenix, those were our next two markets. Now it was becoming too mm. expensive to bring. So we were we actually hired a tech companies to film it and broadcast those into our various offices. Got and it. It was a scramble. There's there's no question about it. And to look back on it. It seems easier than it was at the time. At the time, we were losing a lot of sleep, and uh, me in particular. <laughs> and but, um, but our clients needed us. Our clients still had bills to pay. They still had financial reports they needed to generate. They still had grants they were in the middle of pr- applying to, or grants and contracts that they had received. They had programs that they were running. I mean, those things. And oftentimes didn't just stop. I mean, so and they were in the same boat that you were. Us. They were in the mm-hmm. same boat too, right? Like if they had a physical office, suddenly they couldn't go there anymore. They so couldn't they're go to their office too. either. Yeah. Well, so let me ask you this: Now that you've made the shift to remote, and you you say you prefer the on-site, and the clients prefer the on-site, like, are you going to go back to that? So no, we're not. Uh, we uh, have adopted the term that you hear everybody using these days of hybrid, and. Um, we, uh, we know today that uh, we are never going to go back to having any kinds of requirements to work in a physical office. So, so Blake, if you ever want to stop doing your podcast, you come call me and you, know, you have a job f- with us and you can work sitting right where you're sitting right now. <laughs> um, Perfect, because that's one of my conditions. <laughs> I've gotten too comfortable in here. So we uh, now... We do have plans to open up more physical offices. Mm-hmm. And what's happening, Blake, is as we expand around the country, so, and I don't think I said this yet, though you may have, that we, we've got over 1,200 clients right now. And, uh, you know, when you have that many clients, they form various pockets around major metropolitan areas, for example. And as we get a pocket of clients in one city or another city, uh, what we're, we're hearing already is that a lot of them want us to come back, but not necessarily every visit has to be right. 
on site. So what we're doing now is we're opening up office. Well, when I haven't started yet, but we're planning to open up offices in more in more cities, depending upon where we have these concentrations of clients and who's asking for us to come back. So I want to get back to the survey that you did and sure. talk a little bit more about what makes your firm different than a typical CPA firm. So we've talked about how there's this extreme focus, uh, laser focus on serving public charities, 81% of them, 8% of private foundations. So like, you know, 90%, let's call it, 89% are, are, are charities. You're now serving 97% of your clients remotely, some of the time, some are all of the time. And the service offerings you have are also very focused. So you don't do tax or audit, is that right? That's correct. So it's exclusively controllership type services? Like tell, tell, me, tell me about what you offer. So just to elaborate just for a moment about sure. the things that we don't do, we have never done an audit in close to 30 years, never, not even one. Uh, it's a conflict of interest for firms to do audits and provide whether they call it CAS for client accounting services or whether they call it outsource accounting, audit firms will say, oh, but we separate them out. You know, we, we do audits for these clients and we do accounting for those. I'm not going to get in the middle of that debate. But so the first thing that we do is we don't do audits. And by the way, that's one of the ways we hire people because we hire what I sometimes refer to as refugees from the audit profession. <laughs> and you've talked quite at length on your show about, you know, all the various problems with uh, the audit profession. And by the way, let me just say at the outset, I'm not a basher of the audit profession. It was an excellent learning opportunity for me for those first three years that I worked in public accounting. And I would tell any student today who's in college studying to go into accounting, start your career working for an audit firm, because you're going to learn things and you're going to learn them more quickly, then you'll have an opportunity doing other things. So great learning opportunity. However, I never enjoyed it. And there's very few people that I know who enjoy auditing. So it's a good way for us to attract people. Tax work. I, don't, I never enjoy doing tax work either. And I don't even do my own tax returns today. My wife and I we hire someone mm -hmm. to do our own taxes. And, and the very first year we hired this one uh, person, he, he was found a mistake that I had been making for three consecutive years on, on my return. It was highly embarrassing. Glad he caught it, but it was highly embarrassing. Fortunately, he's a friend of mine. And so we get people who hate doing tax work. So that's a second benefit. There's actually a third benefit. You know, to all of your uh, audit folks who are listening to this, because we don't do audits, because we don't do tax work, we're not competing with audit firms. At least we're not competing with those who uh, do primarily audits and tax work. So, okay, so that's what we don't do. Oh, we don't give investment advice uh, also. And, and we actually put that into our, our, engage, our engagement letters. We actually write it to our engagement letters. Here's some things we're not going to do for you. Yeah, that's <laughs> okay. that's probably more important than the one than the things you are going to do in many cases. So, 
So here's what we do. We do all the things that you would expect a controller to do or a CFO or a whole range of, of things. We'll do everything from basic bookkeeping up to financial statement preparation to, you know, we prepare packets at the end of the month for most of our clients that they can give to their boards. Nonprofit organizations all have boards and those boards meet. And uh, almost every month, there's either a board meeting or a finance committee meeting or an executive committee meeting and so on. They need to look at information. We're oftentimes the ones who prepare that information. We not only prepare the information, but we do an analysis of what's behind the numbers. We teach our staff, what's the story behind the numbers so that those board members whose eyes glaze over when they look at numbers, uh, and let's face it, you know, yeah. board members are all busy people. They, they typically come to a board meeting from their job or whatever else they were doing. They're tired. It might, be, it might be an evening meeting. It's late. So they don't have time to wade through 10 or to 15 pages of financial reports. They need to know, tell me what I need to know. So, okay, we help with budgeting. I'm with you on that. I'm I'm with you on that because oh, I know uh, you are. I know your what, point of view on a lot of things. <laughs> one one of my first jobs as a bookkeeper was for a not for profit, small one, and uh, they just brought me in as as their bookkeeper. But there was no controller. There was no CFO. So they asked me to come to their board meetings, and I ended up becoming <laughs> their de facto finance person. And I, I sort of just by answering the questions that I got and doing my best, I, I kind of learned what it's like to, to tell that story. And you can't just give people a report and expect them to understand it. You like, can't do that. Yeah. Uh, it's not fair to them. And, you know, we are not producing the kind of value that we really have an opportunity to produce. So and, uh, I, I didn't mean to cut you off there. You were talking about budgets next. That's so we help with their budgets. We help them apply for uh, grant funding, grant contracts. We, we don't write grants, though right. we're starting to look into possibly doing that. But we uh, oftentimes will prepare the numbers that go into uh, grants. And then once organizations, so nonprofit organizations get grants, contracts, they may be getting them from federal or other government sources, from foundations and so on. There's usually a follow-up reporting requirement. Reports have to be prepared to comply with the whatever the reporting requirements are. These things can get complicated to prepare. So we'll help with that. Long-term planning, cash flow planning. These are just some of the things that we'll do. And, and depending, so all the things that I just mentioned, these are really the kinds of things that organizations of all types and all sizes need. And, uh, that's another reason why we can't hire somebody out of college because yeah. they don't have the experience to be able to easily and quickly respond as client ha clients have new needs that come up. Well, um, that's what's perfect about the name of your firm is it sets the expectation that these are going to be controller level folks that you're, you're hiring. And so, I mean, what's really interesting about your firm is that there's no there's no hierarchical, it doesn't seem like there's a hierarchical structure the way there is in a traditional firm where you're pushing work down to lower levels, entry level staff people, and then you've got the managers and the partners above them. It seems like it's very much flatter. Is that a fair characterization? That is. Uh, most of our people have uh, the title of associate, which is intentionally vague 
And sometimes people don't like that title because the title might mean somebody who has had the title of controller or CFO who right. comes to work for us and now has the title of associate. It might seem like a demotion, it's, but people shouldn't worry about that if they're listening. And they think, hey, I might want to work there. But within that, that title, we have people with years of experience ranging from three to five years up to 35 years. I, don't, I couldn't even tell you offhand. What's the oldest, most senior level person on our staff? Probably me uh, by now. But so all with the same title. Now, we know uh, and we try to take into account that the different backgrounds and experience as we assign people to clients. So we do our best to take that into account as we make those assignments. Thank you to Account Tests for sponsoring this episode. Have you ever hired a team member whose actual accounting ability fell far short of what they claimed on their resume or in the interview? If so, you've experienced the frustration, disruption, and financial cost of a bad hire. Don't gamble with a new hire. Test their knowledge before you hire with Account Tests. Account Tests offers a suite of technical knowledge, critical reasoning, and personality tests designed by accountants so accounting firms can learn if job candidates truly meet your requirements. Send an online test to the candidate. After they complete it, you'll get an instant report about the candidate's accounting skills, intellectual ability, and working style. That means you can make a fast offer ahead of your competition to the best and brightest. Account Tests also helps you retain and develop your current team members. Is there someone on the team you might want to promote? Is there someone you're thinking about putting in more of a client-facing role? Try the ARPQ Personality Profile. It's a personality test designed specifically for accounting firms. You'll learn your employee's preferred working style and get a personal development plan to help them and your firm reach your goals. Account Tests has a special offer for the listeners of our show. Visit www.accounttests.com Choose any of their tests and get 50% off by using the code EARMARK50. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-E-S-T-S dot com. So 80% or just about 80% of your engagements are ongoing. You're coming back every month doing the financials. Only 20% is project work. I find that to be extremely interesting because I imagine when you have the predictable ongoing work, that creates a secure revenue stream for you. You're not dealing with these ups and downs throughout the year that maybe an audit firm has or a tax firm has. And I'm willing to bet you don't really have a busy season either. Well, that that's correct. Uh, as far as the busy season, we, we, uh, we're busy year-round. We, we don't have a tax season. My whole life, or at least the last 30 years with your part-time controller doing this, during tax season, people always say, Oh, you must be very busy this time of year. No. Well, I would say, actually, yes, we are busy, but we're no busier or or less busy than we are any other time of the year. By the way, that other approximate 20% of our work that's project or interim, oftentimes they lead to ongoing work. So an organization, as they get to know us and as we get to know them, other needs come up. They're always a growing, thriving organization has a constant stream of needs. And our goal is to 
help them with as many of those needs as possible. And even if they're, you know, during the pandemic, when a lot of them did have to cut back on programs, uh, we were able to help them through that as well. And, you know, through all the various uh, pandemic related programs, we were, we helped hundreds of our clients apply for, you know, fill out the, uh, the forms. First, we had to figure out how to do it. And then we had to, we helped them figure out how to do it. So half of your clients are engaging you two to four days per month. You have a sweet spot, it looks like, in the 2.5 to $5 million annual expense area, or, or really it's like, uh, I'm looking at your chart here on this survey, uh, 24% of your clients have between one and 2.5 million in revenue, or sorry, expenses. And then 19% have between 2.5 million and 5 million in expenses. So those are, sounds like those are not-for-profits of a size where they have this need for the controller, but not necessarily a full-time person. It's your, a perfect part-time fit for them. And part of the reason they don't have that controller is because they're small themselves. 10 or fewer employees for uh, half, of the, half of your clients. So I, now on that same page, that you're looking at, there's another chart that shows a pie chart that shows uh, what percentage of our clients actually have a controller. And it says 37%. It's 37%. So we'll just call it a third. A third of our clients have a controller or a CFO or some other title uh, of a person who's in charge of whatever their financial department looks like. Why do they need us then? That third of our clients. Here's what happens. Quite often, organizations put their chief financial person, regardless of his or her title, they put them in charge of non-financial things. They put them in charge of administration. How often have you seen somebody with the title vice president of finance and administration? They put them in charge of IT. They put them in charge of HR. Yep. Uh, if there's facilities, they put them in charge of facilities management. They put them in charge of banking. Uh, they put them in charge of insurance. I have to tell you that I went to Wharton School, but I wasn't trained how to do most of that stuff. We just took accounting classes all day long. Most financial people don't have the training necessarily. They're all, we're all sort of learning on the job. And so here's what happens. They, they meaning the controllers and CFOs of these organizations, full-time people. And by the way, they could have an accounting department with one, two, five, 10, 20 or more people. Not 20 or necessarily 20 or more, but not our clients anyway. They find, though, that they're so busy doing this non-financial, these non-financial tasks that they don't have time to focus in on financial reporting on analyzing financial reports, preparing statements and packages for the board, the finance committee, the executive committees. They don't have time for that. They hire us. So we report directly to that controller or that CFO, and we are able to supplement whatever it is that they're, whatever they need. And that's why it doesn't matter to us whether somebody's got a CFO or a controller or not. We can still come in and and do produce value and do a lot of work for them. Yeah, that that makes total sense to me. I uh, the biggest not for profit I ever worked with in my brief stint in public accounting 
uh, it was the chief operating officer responsible for accounting and finance. And so she needed a lot of help. She had, she had taught herself a lot about it, but needed a lot of help producing those reports for sure. So, and then you have an when int- you look, mm-hmm. yeah. go ahead. No. Well, I was going to say that now with, with tech, now you introduce technology. You know, accountants as a profession were very quick adapters or adopters of spreadsheet programs. But I think that as a profession, after that initial adoption of spreadsheet programs, accountants lost the lead uh, in terms of adopting technology. And, uh, and so what am I talking about? So let's just fast forward to today. Uh, we have a group at our, at our firm. It's a small group, but we call it our data visualization group, DVG. And we're, we're trying to always do more and more of every day is to use technology to deliver information to our clients more quickly, deliver it to them in better forms and formats, to deliver to them in interactive ways, uh, dashboards where you can filter and sort and do whatever they need to do. We thought initially, so, you know, the iPhone came out in 2007 and it took a few years for there to be, um, you know, a a, a lot of applications available Mm -hmm. that can do visualizations. But today, oh my goodness, we, we do a lot of work with Power BI. Uh, we're starting to do more work with Tableau. And that, that's just the tip of the iceberg about what's available in terms of visualization tools. So we're introducing these to our clients. Now, they don't have the time, the expertise, the wherewithal to learn how to use these things. So, you know, all those people out there who are worried, if there is anybody listening to this who's worried that technology is going to replace the role of accountants, don't worry. Yeah. Because no chance. No chance. Every time the technology changes and evolves, which is daily, uh, it's creating opportunity for accountants. We have to learn how to use them. Uh, the technologies, there is an investment of time. You have to sift through all the millions of things out there to decide what are the best things that you want to bring to bear with your clients. But the opportunities are not shrinking, they're increasing. And the nope. faster technology evolves, the faster the opportunities evolve. And your survey shows an interesting stat about the adoption of QuickBooks Online versus desktop. Won't be surprising, I don't think, to any of our listeners to know that 74% of your surveyed clients use QuickBooks, either online or desktop. And in 2020, it was just over half, 53% were using QuickBooks Online. And that number bumped up 6% to 59% using QuickBooks Online and only 15% using desktop. So I think we're pretty close to the end of desktop. I mean, if it drops below 10%, that's 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 loss of the, the market there. I think so too. Yeah. Um, quite frankly, I'm surprised it's taking uh, this long, but a lot of organizations are resistant to change. I mean, people, that's the general human nature, are generally resistant to change. But the other interesting thing on that same page, and, and should I hold this up just so your viewers know? <laughs> so I know your viewers can't read this, and that's okay, but there's like 13, how many pages of this do we have of charts and graphs? That's what 
I sent it to Blake. That's what he's reading off of. So, our, interestingly, our pod- yeah, our podcast listeners will not be able to see. So, if you can oh. describe for them, that's the so best. So, we if have they're um, watching. If they're watching on YouTube, they will be able to see these charts. So, what I'm about to mention right now from our survey is, and and I need to preface this by saying that as our, our company, uh, we do not sell any software. We do not represent any particular software company. We've never have. Uh, we, we tried once about 20 years ago, and that was a disaster. Not because we did anything wrong, but because the software that we chose was a disaster. Mm. Um, so we want our clients to know that if we ever make a recommendation, that we're not getting anything out of it. Okay, having said that, uh, with QuickBooks, there are justifiable reasons to bash QuickBooks. But there are many reasons that I hear people say that are not justifiable reasons. So people will say, oh, well, we outgrew it. Well, I have news for people. QuickBooks doesn't care how many digits your numbers have. I suppose at some point it does care, but not that it's going to make any difference to people. So in our survey, of our clients with budgets of over $50 million a year, 65% of those are using QuickBooks. And the number is pretty consistent. Clients with budgets of 20 to 50 million, 78%, and so on. You know, these are big numbers from big organizations. Our firm, we run our firm using QuickBooks Online. And we chose that on purpose because that's what our clients are mostly using. So we wanted to use what our clients use and things that we learn by, by using ourselves as a guinea pig over the years, you know, we can then introduce those to our clients. So moving on with more technology, <laughs> you've also got data in here about who is doing electronic payments versus physical checks. Yes. Always something I'm fascinated about because for a long time it was 50-50. But among your clients, you know, they may be ahead of the curve because they've got you helping out, right? 69% are doing electronic payments now. And 31%, so less than a third, are doing physical checks only. And that's actually changed a lot from uh, 44% in 2020. So it, is that right? 44% in 2020 were doing physical checks? Correct. Down, down to 31%. Amazing. I think we're, we're, we're on the right track there. And uh, about a third of them are using bill.com to do their bill pay. Uh, and then... 19% doing their bank, using their bank bill pay. So even before the pandemic, we were uh, beginning to talk to our clients about the benefits of paying bills electronically. Now, not all forms of electronic payment are equal in terms of their internal controls, ease of use, and such. And when we started talking to clients about it three years ago or so, they weren't as good as they are today. So like everything in the software world, things constantly keep getting better. But nevertheless, it was clear that, to us anyway, that it was becoming a best practice. For years, we would tell our clients, don't use electronic bill paying. But a few years ago, we started to realize that, you know, the technology is getting better. Okay, so we started to talk to our clients about all the benefits. Then when the pandemic hit, and now our clients are, well, working from home. Well, 
the check signers, they're working from their own also. So you might have the person who does the accounting for an organization. He or she is working in their house. If the executive director has to sign, he or she, they're in their house. If a board member or, or somebody else, if a second signature is needed. And what about if there's a purchase order or if an invoice has to be approved? All these people now are in their homes. Well, if you're on a paper-based system, first of all, you've got a huge logistical problem to get that paper spread around to everyone. And then from an internal control standpoint, it's not the, it's not the best system. You have paper checks, for example, now being stored potentially in somebody's home. So uh, we, and so I mentioned earlier that uh, when the lockdown first occurred in Philadelphia, which is where our administrative office is, even though there's nobody there, it's still, I, technically it's still there, we were getting most of our payments via paper checks. And that was another reason that we almost went into a panic. I mean, a company like ours, we thought, oh my God, if we can't get our mail, we can't get paid. If we can't get paid, we can't make payroll, et cetera, et cetera. We started to discuss the benefits of bill paying electronically with our clients in earnest. Now, if they're already using something, and they like it, fine. They can continue to use whatever they're using. If they're not currently using anything, we try to persuade them that they should. And if they don't know what to use, we are making uh, a recommendation. But I, I won't say the name of the company because we're not representing that company in any way. Right. And well, and you said earlier that you don't sell software. You don't resell it. You had a bad experience with that. Tell me more about like that because a lot of firms that are fast growing are very into software consulting. That's a huge growth area, but you, you stay away from it. Uh, we don't recommend any particular software. And, and yes, we, we purposely stay away from it. Uh, we've been approached many times over the years. And as we've grown, we get approached more frequently. Here's the thing. You can't do everything well. You, yeah, we, there are, there are a lot of big accounting firms out there that you look at you look at their websites and they offer HR services and they offer tech, you know, they'll come and they'll take care of your back-end IT departments. They'll do investment management, they'll do all kinds of things, and they'll they'll process payroll. It's our philosophy that you can't do everything and be great at everything. So we're great. We try to be great. And most days we're great. Some days we're just good. Every now and then we have a bad day. But uh, we, you know, we, we try to stick with these controller functions. And what that allows us to do is pick best of breed. So we don't represent any particular payroll company. But if somebody wants a recommendation, we could talk to them about, you know, the handful that we've experienced with. If somebody needs a recommendation for accounting software, we could talk to them about the ones that we have experience with. But here's the other interesting thing, Blake, with accounting software, nine times out of 10, you can quote me on that statistic, nine times out of 10, if an organization says they need to switch accounting software, and our first question to them is always, why do you think you need to switch accounting software? Nine times out of 10, the reason or reasons that they might give, it turns out that the software that they are already using Whatever it is, I don't care what they're using, whatever it is, it could do, it could probably do what they needed to do. 
So why do they think that it can't do what they want it to do? Well, there's a few common reasons. I was going to say two reasons, but I could probably think of more. One reason is that they're not using the software properly. No one's really taken the time to learn how to use it. Second common reason, they haven't set it up properly. So all of your listeners who are accountants, that we all know that, that if your chart of accounts is not properly set up mm-hmm. to capture the information that your organization needs, then forget about being able to produce all the reports that your organization is going to need. It, it, it doesn't matter what the accounting software is. Uh, so it, it, it's like, it's like a golfer thinking they need to switch clubs, <laughs> right? Or, a, or, a, or in my case, a bowler who needs a new bowling ball. Most of the time, the problem is with the bowler or the golfer, not the clubs, <laughs> the bowling ball. What we do is we'll take a look at what they have. We'll listen to what it is they, 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 they want to be able to do. And, and we'll tell them if we agree or, or don't agree. And nine times out of 10, we show them that, yes, you can, in fact, do everything or maybe almost everything uh, that uh, you want to, to be able to do. So there are justifiable reasons for switching software, but, but that represents one out of 10 of those times. Well, I would love to keep on talking about your part-time controller and your opinions on many of the issues facing the accounting profession and how to run firms. I know you have very strong opinions about (laughs) timesheets. We should say, right, that uh, even though uh, my opinions about timesheets haven't stopped you from listening to my podcast, but you, uh, part of the reason we're talking today is because we had this wonderful email exchange about how uh, your firm uses timesheets and you believe that it uh, delivers value to your customers. And it, it's like, I, I would love to actually hear in the time we have left, you know, what is your opinion on, on timesheets and the whole debate about it? So again, I, I have to start by saying that the things that I'm about to say don't apply in all situations. Uh, you know, the, the conversation about value billing, value pricing, that's not a new conversation. I, 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 because I suspected you were going to ask me. I went on Amazon and just you know checked out value billing and value pricing. There's books going back that I was able to find in my two minutes of research, going back to like 2009 and, and mm-hmm. such. I've got a couple of books in my library, so it's it's not a new topic in, in the profession. Okay, so and second thing is I have no nothing to stand to gain by convincing anyone to agree with anything that I'm about to say. You don't want to use timesheets, don't use them. You know? So, but here's why we, we use them. Uh, the first reason is that it makes it easier for organizations to hire us. They understand billing based upon time. It gives them some control over our billing. When we hire consultants, and by the way, we hire consultants to do stuff for us. I always insist on paying them hourly (laughs) because I want to know what they're doing and I want to have some control over their time. Another thing that happens, why timesheets work for us and why fixed pricing does not. We do good work. And as I said before, and what happens when you do good work is that your clients ask you to do more work. We love when our clients ask us to do more work. And if you have a fixed price arrangement and they ask you to do more work, now you get into this conversation of, 
well, is that part of your scope of work or is that extra scope of work? And, and we're going to say, that's extra scope. And the client's going to say, no, that's not extra scope. Well, we don't want to have arguments with our clients. We're trying to help our clients. We want this. So timesheets eliminate arguments. Timesheets allow us to ramp up as our clients need more help and our clients understand it. And we tell them, that okay, you want me to do? You want me to help prepare a report for this federal uh, contract? We're happy to do that. We think it's going to take us about ten hours. So th- you know, there's what it mm-hmm. will cost. They know, and they can decide. Yes, we need you to do that, or no, we don't want you to do that. So, but it helps us generally ramp up. It also helps us ramp down. We want to be as flexible as possible. Sometimes as an organization grows, they, want, they may want to replace some or all of the work that we do by hiring a full-time person. And uh, we will not only help them with the, to ensure a smooth transition, but if they want us to help them with the hiring process, we can help do that too and help interview the person if they, if they, if they need that help. Well, we now need to ramp down. And uh, uh, we can't do that if we have a fixed price arrangement. So... Organizations are more comfortable. It's easier for them to hire us and so on. And then now there's another reason which speaks to the management of our company. We're able to better manage our staff because, you know, we, in order for us, for this to work, and we work with nonprofits, and I happen to think that our, our, our hourly rates are very reasonable, but our margins are a little bit smaller as a result. And uh, we have to be as efficient as possible. And in order to be efficient, so if somebody comes along and a new client and they think they need us three days a week, well, we have to be able to assign someone who is available three days a week. How do we know who's available three days a week, especially now that we have over 400 people? We have ways built into our uh, system that we built, but primarily it's by looking at their timesheets. So timesheets is one tool that helps us to allocate our workforce. So most of your engagements are ongoing. Is it fair to say that when you scope out the amount of time that a a client is going to need you, you're not really thinking like hour by hour, but more days? So here, you know, you need us a day, a week, or two days, or three days. So that's interesting, because to me, I feel better about using time as a metric when it's not so fine-grained. I oh, always, you know. Yes. So I, I see where you're heading. So we we will never give somebody a proposal where we say we will do we will do this and it's only going to take us an hour a week. Right. You know, so right, we do try to do it normally in chunks of a day. Day. And then yeah, that and then that then when you add a day, right? It's a significant difference uh where it's you're not getting bogged down in these details. But I also think it fits really well with like the service that you provide. So I think one of the one of the problems I have with timesheets is that when you have firms that go and fix a price and then still require timesheets, there's not alignment with the timesheet and the price. There's not alignment yeah, with you know like. But you are you are still because you're pricing based on time or days, then it makes sense to track that. So I, I want to thank you for this new perspective that you've given me on timesheets. I really, it's, and, and also, you know, the, the insights into your firm that you have shared are incredibly valuable and applicable to everyone in the not-for-profit space. 
in terms of, you know, what, what are the type of clients that need our help on a fractional basis? If you want to grow a client accounting services practice, this is really a model to follow. And if you want to join one, you know, this is, this is a model that's working and growing and, and you're in, you're not just on the East coast anymore. You're all over the country, Phoenix. I think you said Houston are that, what are your plans to grow? Let's finish out with this. What, what are the plans for the future with your part-time controller? And then if anyone is listening, is interested in applying, where can they go? So I'll answer the second part first. If anyone's interested in applying, uh, go to our website, uh, yptc.com. Yptc, the initials for your part-time controller. By the way, if you typed in your part-time controller, that will also resolve to our URL. Um, and then once you're there, you'll see how to, how to apply. You know, in terms of plans, uh, well, the short version is that we have some ambitious plans for growth, and uh, they include international and uh, international plans. And uh, I don't know that I have time to, to get into that in more detail. Quite frankly, I don't have a lot more detail yet to offer. But as I said earlier, the pandemic has showed us that we can be effective working remotely. And if we can work remotely, uh, then uh, we can work internationally. And I have um, yeah. go ahead. Well, uh, and we want to. Well, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I, <laughs> I finished that thought. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to actually say one other thing, if I can, before yeah, we please, please. run out of time. Absolutely. Uh, I know that a, a frequent topic on your podcast is uh, how firms, companies of all types and sizes treat their people. And we have, uh, for many years, have participated in these contests of best place to work. And the one that we, we, we like is one where our staff's responses, it's run by the business journals, the various business journals scattered around the country. And um, I'll just say this, that our staff consistently votes us to be a best place to work. We're very proud of that. And you'll have to have me back now where I'll explain yeah. why they 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 consider us to be a best place to work. I would love to do that. Uh, there's many more topics in our possible list of topics. We'll have to do another one, maybe even more than one. I have been speaking with Eric Freint, the founder and president, founder and president of your part-time controller LLC, top 100 accounting firm, no audit, no tax, really a model for a pure accounting firm. We're getting back to the roots of accounting if you ask me. This is this is accounting, you know? That's what that's that's where our profession came from and it's great to see it's great to see your success. So, thank you for your time as well. Thank you, Blake. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that you learned something new. And if you did, wouldn't it be nice to get some CPE credit for it? Well, I've got great news. My new app, Earmark CPE, offers free NASPA-approved CPE credits for listening to podcasts, including this one. Visit earmarkcpe.com to download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. That's earmarkcpe.com.